Welcome to Museums at the Mic, a podcast from the Alberta Museums Association, created for the people who make museums great. Episode 5, Dealing with Disasters, The Canterbury Museums, Christchurch, New Zealand, Part 2. This episode of Museums at the Mic is the conclusion of our conversation with Sarah Murray, Curatorial Manager at the Canterbury Museums in Christchurch, New Zealand. We will pick up the story of the 2010-2011 Canterbury earthquakes with the reopening of the Canterbury Museums and how they went about interpreting a major earthquake in a community still recovering from that disaster. So you were able to open the museum again to the public by September of 2011. Mm -hmm. When, When that happened, was there an immediate move to address the earthquakes that had just happened or uh, did it take a while for the the museum staff to feel comfortable uh, and that it was appropriate to address the the recent events? It's an interesting thing isn't it when you you come to start thinking about how you might interpret a natural disaster and when is the right time to do that and to an extent it is a little bit subjective it's hard to say but we had the feeling from the networks we had out in our community that some form of recognition would be appropriate when we reopened, um, but that it had to be something that wasn't too challenging. So when we reopened in September 2011, we actually um, opened with an exhibition called Hearts for Christchurch, and this was a display of 4,000 hand-stitched hearts that had been sent as kind of expressions of love and support to Christchurch from all around the world. So we had um, hearts from schools in the States that had stitched them and sent them to us from people in Israel and 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 Palestine, from the UK, from Argentina, um, all of whom had responded to a call from a woman in the North Island of New Zealand who said, I wanted to do something for Canterbury, join with me and send them these hearts. And so We had that up on display for about five months and it was beautiful. They were just arranged in this lovely kind of pattern on the wall that people could come in and look at and you could see uh, a lot of them had wee little notes about who sent them or their thoughts for why they were sending them. And then at the end of that exhibition, the actual intent was to give them away. And so we had a community day where people of Christchurch could come in and choose the heart that they wanted to take away. And it was a really quite a moving experience, um, quite a cathartic one as well, so that that did feel right um, and it also I guess became clear to us during that process that there was an expectation in the community that one year on from the February event there was a desire to see an exhibition that perhaps was a bit more in depth around what had happened. Uh, so we actually started working on that in around October, November 2011 uh, and looked at putting together about a 400 square metre exhibition around some of the the personal stories from the quake, giving people a little bit of the background to the science of what happened. Um, You know, obviously there were a a lot of theories doing the rounds at that point in time. Um, a particular gentleman who um, put forward the idea that earthquakes were caused by tidal movements in the moon, which actually made a lot of people really un- uncomfortable and insecure about particular 
times of the month. So being able to explain scientifically what had happened and give people information was really important. And then also a little bit of information around the regional recovery and what uh, different councils had planned looking forward. So we actually opened a second exhibition by the 22nd of February 2012 um, and we had absolutely incredible feedback to that. Um, it's probably the first exhibition I've ever seen where you'd wa walk anonymously through the space and you would see people turn to one another and start sharing their stories and um, locals would tell people from out of town what it was like or you'd, you'd start, you know, it's probably never ever been an occasion where people would, would say to each other, you know, where did you go for a shower or how did you manage these things? But that kind of conversation was happening and it was incredible to witness. Wow. Were earthquakes or the potential for earthquakes addressed in the museum prior to the, the 2010 and 2011 quakes? We didn't have a gallery as such dedicated to them, but there were a couple of mentions in the museum. So um, we have a, a geology gallery, and within that there were a few items that related to historic earthquakes. Um, and for many years a, a working seismograph, um, which of course nowadays has is, is been updated to a website. Um, and actually and we have a, a kind of replica 19th century Christchurch street and one of the shops in there when you go and the shopkeeper starts chatting to you and one of the things he says is um, oh you know did you see the other day that the spire of the cathedral came off in the earthquake and it was very surreal because he was referring to an earthquake that actually happened in 1901 which was I think the third time that the spire fell down but of course when you're listening to it in 2010, 2011, it feels like he's talking about the earthquake that happened just the other day. So yeah, there were some references, um, but probably not as many as there might be in the future now, having had these events and seeing the, the implications of them. Okay. So the, the initial exhibit after the, the Hearts for Christchurch was a temporary exhibit. That's right. So um, that exhibit was called Canterbury Quakes and it ran for about seven months. So um, like most museums around the world, we have an exhibition schedule that's booked about two years in advance. And we've been working with uh, several international museums on a traveling exhibition relating to Scots Antarctic exploration. So we knew that this exhibition was coming later in 2012. And as a result, knew that Canterbury Quakes had a very finite display period. So quite early on um, we were getting messages that people wanted to keep having some form of interpretation in Christchurch. Um, so the, the, the museum team went to the drawing board and looked at options um, and we came up with two plans. So the first of those was that some elements for Canterbury Quakes actually went off on a national tour. Um, we'd had feedback from other museums in New Zealand that this was a story that their communities wanted to learn about and I guess learn from. Uh, so it had a two and a half year tour around the country. And then a second element we developed, which was a, an earthquake exhibition to stay in Christchurch. Unfortunately, we knew very quickly that there'd be no space within the actual museum we'd be able to hold this. So we actually had to look for an alternative site. And as part of that, we gave great thought to where would be most appropriate. Um, we were really clear that for us, we wanted to meet the community need to have some form of interpretation, but also perhaps give back a little in terms of being part of the rejuvenation of the central city. So 
we were lucky enough to be able to find a, a suitable space within Restart Mall, which is the big container mall, and actually put together a 700 meter squared earthquake exhibition in that space within a really tight kind of six to nine month period. Um, and that included literally everything from putting down concrete flooring to building walls to obtaining objects and stories. So it was a pretty incredible process. A very quick process. Very quick indeed. It's uh, curating under pressure following a traumatic event and yeah. all senses of it. Senses wow. of the world. So how were decisions made about what to include, what not to include. Um, most museums, assuming the Canterbury Museum is similar, don't collect a lot from the recent past. Um, how, did, how did the museum go about choosing the objects, choosing the stories under such a tight time constraint and given that the staff themselves had been impacted by this? So I think the first thing that we started with was to think about what what the message of this exhibition was and who our audience might be. Um, and we very quickly came to the realisation that there were those three areas that people would be interested in, which was understanding what people went through, learning about the science of the quakes, but then also having an aspect that as a museum is a little bit uncomfortable because it's a slight crystal ball gazing, looking towards the future, what what might lie ahead for the city. So those areas were really quickly mapped out as our main focus and that helped then inform us as to what stories fitted within that. And we were exceptionally lucky to have the overwhelming support of 60 different organisations and individuals in putting together this exhibition. Uh, we were, were collaborating with these people at a point in time where they both professionally and personally, was, many of them were still struggling and putting together their own lives, um, but were just blown away by the extent of their generosity and sharing their stories and their objects. So part of the intent of the exhibition was to be very sensitive around the earthquakes. This was still very raw to the people of Canterbury. Um, and we wanted to be able to convey not only the devastation and the heartache, but also the opportunity that the earthquake had provided us to learn more about our people and our place. So that was, I guess, one of the guiding principles when we looked at what we might include. And in a way, the earthquakes offered us an unprecedented opportunity to provide and have access to objects of Christchurch's heritage. So. For instance, we have on display the spire cross from Christchurch Cathedral. Um, it fell some 63 metres to the ground and lay crumpled in front of the cathedral for several weeks. And obviously without the earthquake, you never would have had that on display. Probably my favourite object. Um, we worked with a cha uh, Bishop Barry, who was the Bishop of the uh, Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament, the, the Catholic Cathedral in the city and he was so generous with us. He allowed us to use the exquisite fleur-de-lis tiles from the roof of the cathedral that hadn't been seen since they'd been put up there in 1905, and they're beautiful, gorgeous copper pieces. Um, but probably the best object we came across was this door um, that had been in the Catholic cathedral, and it was an area only used by clergy, and it had over 100 years of Catholic clergy graffiti on it, including three mentions of historic earthquakes. So it actually has written on it that the cathedral, stop clock, that cathedral clock stopped in the 1930s 
due to an earthquake in the North Island. And it was kind of that eureka moment where you suddenly see this really innocuous wooden door, but actually it has this whole relevance to the history of the subject that we were looking at. So being able to have access to those kind of objects would never have been possible. And so a lot of Quake City uh, is actually based on objects loaned from those community groups to build up those stories and those displays. So uh, a lot of the, the built heritage is represented through those kind of objects. Uh, many of the human stories, we've um, worked with various groups to represent those through, for instance, personal interviews. Um, and also through um, various different objects. So for instance, we, we worked with the Student Volunteer Army. So this was a group set up by the University of Canterbury students following the February quake um, to arrange volunteers to come and clean up liquefaction. And we tell their story through some of the um, tools that they use, so the shovels and the wheelbarrows, uh, but also because they mobilise so quickly and um, they wanted to have some way of showing people that they were part of the official gang. They had um, student volunteer army t-shirts. And so the chap who was kind enough to donate his t-shirt to us had actually worn it in response to the Canterbury earthquakes and then cleaning up those events. But also he took it over to Japan with him when the student volunteer army went over there to help in March 2011 in the cleanup after the tsunami. So there's this incredible range of objects and stories that we've been able to have access to that really give people uh, who visit Quake City the ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes to really understand what it might have been like to live through not only an event that happened on the 22nd of February but one that has continued to have repercussions in the weeks and months and years that have followed. When did Quake City open and is it permanent forever? So Quake City opened to the public in February 2013 and initially the plan was to have it open for two years. We pretty quickly realised that that was probably going to be too short so we have extended the lease on the building so it will be open until at least the end of 2017 uh, but we, we do recognise at the museum that there's probably likely to be some ongoing form of earthquake interpretation happening for a long time yet um, so it might not be on the same site uh, and that's probably one of the things in, in Christchurch that you've had to become a bit more flexible with that things change all the time so uh, we will probably start looking for other options for where it might go soon. What has the community response to Quick City been? Uh, you'd mentioned that the Hearts for Canterbury, Hearts for Christchurch and the initial temporary exhibit had a very um, cathartic, uh, almost positive community response. Did Quake City continue in that vein? I think so. We, we've certainly received really positive feedback from our visitors that go through the display. So some market research that was done in 2015 found that 97% of visitors found that the exhibition met or exceeded their expectations. So to us, that's quite a, a good number to, to be achieving. Um, when Quake City opened to the public, we initially received a, a couple of criticisms over one of one part of the experience. So 
probably the first part really that visitors encounter was a, a sound and, and visual experience relating to Ruamoko, who was the Māori god of earthquakes. And we received two forms of feedback around that. Um, one was that some some visitors found that the experience was too long, and the other was that some visitors simply didn't want to have Māori content at all. Um, so part of the museum's ambit is, is obviously to, to be culturally inclusive, so it was really important to us to include that particular facet of the exhibition, and we'd actually worked with Te Runanga o Naitahu, who are our local Māori group, to put that together. So it was actually in Te Reo and in English as well. So we went back to Te Runanga o Naitahu and talked with them about what we might do. So we did spend some time um, improving that experience, but also explaining it more clearly to people who were coming in through the door so that they knew what to expect. And if they needed it, there was a, an option to go through without seeing that component. Um, we otherwise have had incredibly positive support for the exhibition. Uh, we continue to have really good numbers through the doors. Uh, certainly the, I guess, lo uh, people who are locals perhaps are tapering off a little bit more now. Uh, they'll still occasionally come through when they're bringing visitors through, but a lot of a lot of our visitors now we're finding are, are national, international visitors to Christchurch. So um, our visitor research again tells us that most of them come to Quake City to learn about the quakes, to, to show their respect for people, and that they find it quite an emotionally moving, quite a touching exhibition to go through. Um, and you know, being able to have access to to those original objects and those personal stories really for them makes it a, a incredibly evocative display that um, makes them feel connected to the stories of our, our people and our place. I can see an exhibit like this having the potential to stir up um, bad memories of, of what people went through in the exhibit or in the, in the earthquakes. Uh, is there a portion of it that allows visitors to um, deal with those emotions that may come up when going through and seeing again what what they experienced. It's interesting you ask that because it is such an emotional journey for a lot of people and I obviously in my role at the museum do a lot of work with various community groups and I've had several people say to me I'm just not ready to go through yet. And that's absolutely okay. You know, obviously we recognise that this isn't for everyone. I have though had people say to me, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ready. You know, could you take me through? Um, and every single person who has had some form of reluctance about going through, once they've been through the doors and seen what it is, has spent ages in there. It's been something that they've found quite cathartic. And I think... Certainly initially we we had a lot of discussion around the idea of a shaking experience that a lot of people when you say oh it's an earthquake exhibition have an assumption that you're the first thing you're going to go in and do is be shaken around and our team were really clear that we didn't feel that that was appropriate so um, you know obviously you're talking about earthquakes of significant movement uh, there are obvious health and safety issues if you do one that is of the equivalent size. 
or equally if you do a, a less than equivalent size you've got locals who would come in and say well that was nothing like the actual earthquake we went through so not only were there the practical considerations but also those emotional ones that actually something like a shaking experience just wouldn't be right so I think that the exhibition offers visitors a variety of ways that they can choose the depth to which they engaged with the earthquakes and with the emotion and experiences they might have had. Um, it doesn't shy away from confronting the fact that this was difficult, the fact that people went through an extraordinary amount of pain, that people died, that the this kind of event is going to resonate in the city for for years to come but it does offer them ways to manage that and there are quieter spaces and reflective spaces that allow people to process their own thoughts as well along the way. Okay. Have the earthquakes changed the way the museum collects in the present? Has there been a, a response to, um, you mentioned objects on loan for Quake City, um, kind of a, a collection, collecting of more contemporary pieces. Mm. Have, have there been any other changes to how the museum collects because of the earthquakes? Probably the, the biggest change is that normally the museum has a 50-year a rule around what we might bring into the collection and we've made an exception in order to collect some limited material relating to the Canterbury earthquakes. So there was a recognition quite early on that much of this material was quite ephemeral and could be disposed of. Uh, we didn't want to be collecting great big piles of broken bricks and crockery and glassware. That wasn't what to us represented the quakes. Um, so we have done some work around collecting things that are perhaps a bit richer in the story they may bring. So uh, for instance I've done some work with um, collecting oral histories from the New Zealand police photographers. Uh, so these were the forensic photographers who were in the red zone uh, working with the emergency search and rescue teams and they were capturing some of the the only images that we have of the central city at that time and they are the most incredibly respectful and professional and amazing people I probably have ever had the privilege to work with um, they, they understood that this was someone's loved one and they treated that process with that kind of respect so we've had that kind of exception to our collecting. Uh, we're still very much sticking, I'm sticking, uh, very much adhering to, I guess, otherwise our, our already established collection priorities and restrictions. So uh, we normally collect 2,500 objects, or up to 2,500 objects in a year, uh, and we haven't changed that at all. Um, we're probably just being a bit more aware around the issues with the building that there are limitations to what we can store until such a time that we have a building that will be up and running and in and, and a more advanced state to care for those kind of objects. So I think the only question I would have left, because we, we really we've talked about you know, what the earthquakes did, how the museum was affected, how the museum has interpreted the events, which I think for uh, a lot of Alberta museums will, will be really interesting because we tend not to interpret things right after they happen um, but as you've said it can be a very cathartic thing for your community to, to revisit that um, is there anything else about the, 
the experience that the, the city of Christchurch, the region of Canberra, is still going through? Or... Um... I think probably the only comment I'd make is, is just to be good to yourselves. You know, you're working potentially at a time that's quite traumatic and you're always trying to do the best that you can. But I think it's important for us to, as, as heritage professionals, to realise that recovery will take a long, long time and that there will be issues and complexities and steep learning curves that you perhaps might not anticipate, but that can lead to something really amazing. And I think probably that's my only word of wisdom around this, that just give yourself, be kind to yourselves, that, um, you know, that there, there is great value in what you do. And when you're doing it in a kind of response to a traumatic event, there's a huge amount of pressure associated with that. So it's really important to recognise that you're human and that it's okay to make mistakes and that people are there to help and support you when you need them. Excellent. To see what the Hearts for Christchurch and Quake City exhibits look like, check out the Museums Engaged blog at www.museums-cei.blogspot.ca Museums at the Mic is supported by the Alberta Museums Association's Museum Flood Funding Program. This program is committed to supporting recovery and rebuilding for Alberta museums in every flood-impacted community. Thank you for listening.